Welcome to the Institute of Men podcast, where we are figuring out what kind of men we want to be and pursuing that vision relentlessly for the rest of our lives. We derive wisdom from what is ancient, traditional, and from the greatest men in history. My name is Keaton Tucker, and I want to thank you for listening. Today, we are talking about being subject to our personality. Then we will go into our comments section, and we'll be finishing with today's gospel coming from John chapter 2. are new to the podcast or you haven't hit that subscribe button go ahead and do that now and if you would be so kind as to leave a five-star review and if you want to get into heaven leave a comment it's guaranteed entrance into heaven if you leave a comment on your favorite listening app thank you for listening and supporting the institute of men all right everybody welcome to the podcast i hope you are doing well today wherever you are listening whether you are driving or if you're like me and you listen to podcasts while you work out instead of music or if you're folding laundry or whatever you are doing thank you for listening i do hope you are doing well today as i'm recording this it is very cold here in new england and we are experiencing a half snow which is kind of cool that we are having our very first snow Um, I have some great news for you all. At least I think it's great news. It's great news for me. This is big news in the podcast world. I don't know how much you know about the podcast world or if you run a podcast yourself, but as of this recording, and I am recording this on Thursday, November 9th, as of this recording, the Institute of Men podcast is averaging 1,200 downloads per month. 1,200 downloads per month. And so a download is basically a listen or a stream. It doesn't necessarily indicate your audience size, but it indicates how often your podcast is being listened to on a monthly basis. And there's a good chance that we have been over a thousand for a while, but because of the hosting platforms I have used in the past, they didn't give great analytics. And I recently switched to a platform called Captivate and the analytics are significantly better. And I was looking at them last week and I was tracking and I was looking, I was like, oh my gosh, in about three or four days, we're going to be averaging over 1000 downloads per month. And when I checked it before this recording, we are now averaging 1200 downloads per month, which is, it's huge. So in podcast world, if a podcast gets 31 downloads per episode, just per episode, it's like 120 downloads per month, it's in the top 50% of all podcasts. Most podcasts do not get more than 35 views per episode, which is kind of wild to think about. And if a podcast gets over 120 views per episode, then that podcast is in the top 25% of all podcasts. So that means, listeners of the Institute of Men podcast, that we are in the top 25% of all podcasts. And this is this is huge for me. I hope, I, I hope I'm coming across as excited as I was when I initially read it. Because I've been recording these episodes for almost two years, and I've been learning, and I've been trying to get better. I have taken a lot of time off, and then I've been like felt like I've wasted my time a lot often, and then sometimes get really excited about it and the potential. And when you do a podcast, there's a lot of ebb and flow, and being consistent is very, very difficult. But also, I have been—I don't market this podcast. I rely 
all of, I like I do zero marketing. I've relied on my listeners, you listening to this podcast to pass the podcast along and recommend it to others. And of course, you know, I have relied on SEO as much as you can rely on SEO. But for the most part, every listener who has found this podcast has been primarily because somebody has shared it with them. So I just want to say thank you for supporting the work of the Institute of Men. It's very exciting to me like that we have hit this level and it, it seems like we have some momentum and I'm very excited for what this podcast can be. So please continue to share the podcast. I have more ideas than I know what to do with for this podcast and for other parts of the Institute of Men. And I'm hoping that God blesses the work so that I can do this full time and, and get into these other areas that I want to do where I will I will need help uh, to grow this podcast at some point. And a thousand downloads per month is like a tipping point. Uh, you hit there's certain tipping points where you hit them and your podcast starts to grow or your platform starts to grow and a thousand downloads per month is uh, like the second tipping point. It's actually around like 150 listens as a tipping point. And then if you can get to a thousand, then after that, it's just, it's really, really exciting for me. And I, I'm just, I'm so thankful for all of you who have listened to this podcast, especially if you've been listening for the beginning when I just plugged and played and didn't do any editing and I would script for sure, but I didn't work very hard on how I wanted to do the podcast, and now I've put a lot more effort into it. And I'm I'm just so so thankful for all of you who have listened, and and I hope this has been as beneficial for you as it has been for me in creating this podcast. Now, if you have listened to this podcast for a while, you've heard me tell the story about the question my father asked me when I was 23 years old. You know, I'm in the garage feeling sorry for myself, talking to him, and he says, "Son, what kind of man do you want to be?" You've probably heard that story. But before my dad had asked me that question, there was actually another man who poured into my dad and then into me as well. And I want to take a minute to honor him. And as I was, I wrote this podcast yesterday. I don't, I don't write and record on the same days. And as I was, um, as I was writing this yesterday, I actually had to take a moment because I was, I was crying because um, I'm just, I'm so thankful for what my life has become because of. Uh, not only my father and my mother and all the people who have poured into me over the years, and but because of this man, Jack Young. And uh, so in a lot of ways, Jack Young saved my dad. I don't mean like eternal salvation, but I mean he, he put him back on a right path. I don't know all the details of the story. I might have to have Pops come on and, and share because I might exaggerate the details just a little bit, but I'm pretty sure my dad and Jack met when my father was 18. And... Jack took my dad under his wing and he kept him from, I guess, ruining his life. And again, if I'm exaggerating, Pops, you should come tell that story. And when I turned 16 years old, my dad had a special birthday for me. He did this for my brothers as well. He took us to a fancy steakhouse, which was a treat. We didn't go to fancy steakhouses, but he took us to this really fancy steakhouse. And he invited three men who were very influential in my life. And during the dinner, each of these men took us and took me into a private room to share some wisdom and to pour into me and make a deposit of words into my life. And I, I still remember what these men said to me. You know, my youth pastor was there and and he said, you're, he told me, you're not strong for you, but you're strong so you can defend those who aren't. And then my baseball coach was there, Coach Dan, who encouraged me to use all of my intensity and tenacity that I had in baseball for some great purpose beyond myself. Because I, I was. I've always been kind of intense. I've always been kind of tenacious. And then there was Jack Young. And um, 
I mean, I, I wouldn't be the man that I am today without any of those other men, but I definitely wouldn't be the man today without Jack Young because I wouldn't have the father that I have, and my dad would probably wouldn't have had the marriage that he has if it wasn't for, for Jack Young. And I actually get a reminder every two weeks on my phone to just be very thankful for Jack and say a prayer for him that says, before there was my father, there was Jack Young. And so Jack Jack Young, he takes me into this back room and um, this is just a testament. You have no idea what one good man can do for generations. That's like what Jack Jack Young's life is a testament to. You have no idea what one man can do for for generations. Excuse me. So Jack, he takes me in this back room and um, he doesn't really talk to me about me very much, but he talks about the faithfulness of God and the future of the church and the future of our country. And he even wrote me on a card. He wrote this on a card that... Um, I had kept and then my mom kept it for me and she found it. She sent it to me so that I could frame it. And here's what the card said. It said, the future of this great country will depend on Christian men who carry out God's will in their lives and in their families. And more important, the future of the church will be determined by men of God who lead in bringing Christ to the forefront. God bless you. That was 16 years ago that he wrote that note to me. And I, I had forgotten about that. And I had no idea at the time that I would want to consecrate my life to building Christian men who build God's church and their families. Like when I started this podcast, that must've been somewhere in my heart or somewhere in my subconscious or somewhere in my spirit as a deposit that I, I didn't even remember. And, but it was given to me by another man when I was 16 years old. And here we are. And you have no idea what one man's words can become in your life. And you have no idea what your words can become in another man's life. Like you have no idea. And so use those words wisely. If you're a father, have a birthday like that for your kids when they're 16. He did it again for us when we were 21. Have a birthday like that for your kids. Get some other men to go and pour into your sons and into and some women to pour into your daughters. And, uh, cause you don't know where it will lead them. So this podcast, a thousand downloads, I want to dedicate to Jack Young, Jack Young, God bless you. Okay, today's topic is about our personality. And I want to start this episode with a quote from Thomas Akempis. He wrote my favorite devotional called The Imitation of Christ. If you haven't read it, you should read it. It will be required reading for my children at some point in their life. I'm going to make sure that they read this book. It makes an impression on me every time I read it. And it's deep and convicting. And it's like the, it's a, written by a man who knew the soul of men. And the soul of women, but really he knows the soul of man. And the quote I'm going to read has the phrase dishonest excuses, talking about how we excuse our behavior and our words dishonestly to kind of justify ourselves. So listen for that phrase as I read the quote. And here's the quote. Quite often we're unaware of our own blindness and make a bad action worse by the dishonest excuses we offer for it. We lose our temper, for example, and we put it down to zeal. Or we pounce on the slight faults in our neighbors so as to have an excuse for ignoring the more serious faults of our own. How quick we are to reckon up our grievances against other people and how slow to notice what a lot of them have to... (laughs) How slow we are to realize how much they have to put up with us. And yet the man who sees himself as he really is hasn't the heart to criticize the next man. So there's that phrase, dishonest excuses. This is a quote about noticing the plank or the speck in other people's eyes but failing to see the plank in our own eye. And I think there's plenty of dishonest excuses in the modern world. There's plenty of them. 
But I think the dishonest excuse of the day is the phrase, that's just my personality. I hear it all the time. We say things such as like, I have an addictive personality. Or from the example, I'm not angry, I have zeal. Or I'm a type eight on the Enneagram. Or on the Myers-Briggs, I'm an ESTJ. Or I'm a high D on the disc, so I can just I just tend to bulldoze over people. Or if you're in Gen Z, this has become a very popular thing among Gen Z that I don't quite understand. They'll say the phrase, as part of their personality, that's my slight autism. And for this podcast, I want you to memorize the phrase, I am not subject to my personality. You know, we are eager to explain away our bad behaviors with the excuses of personality, and simultaneously we are desperate just to be able to explain ourselves to others in hopes that they're going to affirm us and our existence, and maybe they'll even have compassion on our bad behaviors. But I've noticed a correlation between those who, you know, make excuses for their personality while explaining their personality. When we explain our bad behaviors to others, here's the correlation. When we explain our bad behaviors to others, we blame personality. So, for example, if I say, uh, um, let's say I'm I'm uh, I'm addicted to work, and I say I'll just have a I have an addictive personality. Well, it's my personality's fault. I can't help it. I blame my personality. So when we see we when we explain our bad behavior to others, we blame personality. But when we see the bad behavior in others, we blame their character. Well, you're addicted to work because you don't have boundaries. And the person who tries to explain their personality the most tends to be the most judgmental of other people's character. It's the correlation I'm still pondering. So the person who tries the most to explain how they are because of their personality is also the person who has the biggest plank in their eye that they're unaware of and they judge other people's character. It's a correlation that I've noticed. And I think we all know that we're supposed to live on a higher plane than personality. Like, I really believe we all know we're supposed to live on a higher plane. We know we're supposed to live from our will, guided by our character that we have developed over years of, of submitting ourselves to our will and to wisdom and to the instruction of others and to authority. And that's why we see bad behavior for what it really is. We see it as bad character instead of just mere personality. But we would never dare say that our own character is bad and explains our poor choices. Like, no, we would never be like, oh, I have bad character. No, we would say, no, that's just who we are. It's just my personality. That's a dishonest excuse. And the dishonest excuse listed above, those are all excuses that I've used for myself. I have said in the past that I have an addictive personality. I am a type eight on the Enneagram. I am the Myers-Briggs thing. I am a high D. I've, I've used all of those to explain my bad behavior. I've said, I have an addictive personality to explain my past use of tobacco and my intense need to spend money every single day. I couldn't explain it. I like felt like I had to spend money every day, even if it was $3 or $4. Well, I just have an addictive personality. I just, this is just who I am. I also used it to explain why I was so fit at 24. I was addicted to exercise. So if you've heard my last podcast, you know, I used to be very, very good at CrossFit, thought about being competitive and, you know, fortunately or fortunately or not, I don't know how to say that, but the thing, the same personality trait that had me addicted to tobacco had me addicted to exercise. You know, I'm addicted to a good thing, which makes it good, right? Uh, No, no, addiction is still addiction. An addictive personality is a nice cover for I don't have self-control. If I was honest with myself, I didn't have an addictive personality 
personality, I lacked self-control and I didn't want to admit that. If you can't control your spending, that's not an addictive personality. That's not even a personality thing. That's that's a lack of self-control. And I didn't want to admit that my character was compromised in that way, partly because I thought so highly of myself. Or when I was rude or bulldozed over someone with my words, which I tended to do, especially in my younger years, or if I dismissed anything that they said, or if I shh them, which I'm embarrassed to admit that I used to shh people, which is so, gosh, what a jerk I was. God, thank you, Jesus, for saving me. I protected myself from criticism by saying, well, I'm just an eight on the Enneagram. What can you expect of me? Like, I'm just an eight. And your Enneagram doesn't, your Enneagram type, your personality type, your Myers-Briggs, your DISC doesn't give you or me permission to be rude or dismissive because I'm not subject to my personality. We talk about our personality like it rules over our will. And for many of us, you know, it it does rule over our will. And remember that verse in Second Peter, whatever overcomes a man to that he is enslaved, even and including our personality. Do you like, here's a question that I had to ask myself. Do you really want to be enslaved to your personality? That's our blindness in the modern world. It's our, it's our dishonest excuse. And most of us have fallen for it. We attribute our faults to personality, but their faults to character. If you remember that correlation from above, oh, my faults are my personality. Their faults are their character. I'd be willing to bet that your grievances against your neighbor, your brother, your wife, your boss, your enemy, I bet, I bet, if you're like me, and you probably are more like me than we are willing to admit, because human nature is all very similar, I bet you see their character flaws clearly. I I bet you've assigned intentions and motives to their heart. I know I do, because that's how blind I am. And I wish I could say that I have, I noticed this earlier, but I didn't. It actually wasn't until maybe a couple of years ago. <laughs> Marriage probably helped me with that one because you see all the faults in your spouse real quick and they, they're a mirror to you and they see yours clear, very clearly. Um, so if you get married, you just know, or when you get married, no, they're going to see that. How blind does a man have to be to know that he is blind or to not know that he is blind? Excuse me. Like how blind does a man have to be to not know he is blind? You know, like uber blind because, you know, blind people, they know like I can't see clearly. It's everything's dark or it's blurry. But how blind do you have to be to not know you're blind? And such is the man who's unaware of himself, blaming all on personality and not on his own lack of character. And this is, this, again, this was true of me. This is, true, this is probably still true of me. The blindest men are those who can see the faults of, in others, but not of themselves. They can, they're, they're actually so, they're so blind that they can even see the specks in others, but they can't see the log in their own eye or the logs surrounding them. And the logs in their eyes, they like the logs in our eyes, they keep us from seeing ourselves first. For whatever reason, we can still see other people's faults, but we can't see our own. I hope that's never said of us anymore. I hope that's not true of me anymore. I hope I become a man who's quick to remove the log from his own eye. Like, remember that quote from up, up top? And yet the man who sees himself as he really is hasn't the heart to criticize the next man. Because when you see yourself as you really are, and you, you start to, you, one, you'll become more compassionate, and you'll definitely become more merciful. Uh, but not the there's a prideful compassion that thinks it's more righteous than others because they have no they have no sense of truth or justice. They're just uh, permissive on all things and they call themselves compassionate. That's not compassion. That's that is uh, self righteousness disguised as humility. True. 
one person, a man who sees him how sees himself as he is, will know he's in desperate need of a savior, and that he is in constant need of correction and training in righteousness. And he knows that truth has has not found its way to abide in him, and he knows it hasn't found its way to abide in others too. So he's merciful to them, but he is also willing to share what he has seen for himself, so that they might also grow. They're not permissive. They're, they're, that false sense of compassion that does, has abandoned truth is actually just lying to people. I want to be a man of character. I have a personality, but I don't want to be subject to my personality. I actually want to be subject to my will that has been developed by my character as I have submitted to Christ. All right, now it's time for the comments section where we respond to comments left either on YouTube or on the podcast. And there's a comment that I've been meaning to come back to on my YouTube page. I have mentioned it before, and if you recall, I made a video about reading the Bible, and I made a clip of that and then uploaded the clip to YouTube, and the clip got a lot of views for a page like mine. It got 7,500 views, and then it got a ton of comments, and most of them were, you know, they were interesting, to say the least. If you did listen to the episode, I talked about how one comment was about People had removed books of the Bible that talked about aliens and how the aliens had built civilization. And then it was something like it was a wonky comment. It was long. But there was one comment I think is worth talking about. And I think we are in a time in church history when people are willing to look into this particular topic or look at this particular topic. And I think we need to. Otherwise, well, you know, let's just look at the comment first and then we'll go from there. This is from someone who I'm, this comment I'm sure is outside the church. Maybe they grew up in it. Maybe they became disillusioned or they never entered into the church and they're just observing. And I think that might actually be the case. I think they're, I think they're either disillusioned by what they saw when they came into the church at some point in their life, or they never entered it and they're just an observer. And I'm more inclined to think they're just an observer, and I'll I'll explain why. So here's the comment, or let me background. Remember, I make a video on how to read the Bible, and he responds with this comment: "Hey, you know, I think I'll read that book, and then I'll start my own religion based on how I interpret it. Maybe I'll change a few things to better suit my agenda, but no one will care in 100 years." Now, that, so that's the comment. Now, the reason I think this person is outside the church is because they're able to see something that most of us on the inside of the church who have maybe been in church for even just a little bit or for our entire life, that people on the outside are able to see that you and I may not be able to see. And it's the fact that there is no coherent, unified belief system within the whole of Christianity in the United States of America. Not I, I can't speak for the rest of the world because I don't live in the rest of the world. I live in the United States. The average person who is not in the church could walk into say a Catholic parish and then they could walk into the mega a mega church and they would be confused out of their mind. And then if they went over to a Lutheran church, they might see, they might get traditional Lutheranism or they might get the woke stuff. You know, there's a Lutheran church here that's got a big old pride flag on it. It's very close to my house. Or they're going to go to a Pentecostal church, and that's going to be quite the experience. So they're going to turn on the 700 Club and be like, what is going on? And you have to imagine, if you're an outsider, you're not a Christian, you look at all that and you're like, what? Like, just imagine, if you're an outsider, 
And the temptation of people inside the church when they have a reaction like that is is to point to, you know, that group or that group and be like, that's not true Christianity. We're true Christianity. And everybody says that with a, you know, and they they're, they mean it. But to the person on the outside, they're like, well, how, why would I believe you? Well, they, the other church makes the exact same claim. And that is something I think you and I need to humbly consider. Because if they go to any number of churches, an outsider would easily conclude that all of Christianity is just a subjective religion based on one individual's interpretation. Not to mention those, there are all those people who'd be like, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. And it, a person on the outside would be like, that does, it's obviously a religion. <laughs> it, that doesn't even make sense. And they would see that we are no different than someone like Joseph Smith, and we're no different than any other man-made religion. We're, we all just use the same book, but it's up for our own interpretation. And we have somehow managed, and this is just true in the United States, and as I was reading about Christianity in the United States from so many perspectives, it seems that we have undermined any authority that the Bible might have had or the church has because everyone wants to interpret it in his own way with their own emphasis. And this is like especially true today. I'll give you an example. If you see a preacher using different translations to make his point, getting the words just right to make his point, you know he's probably not being faithful to the original intent. That's like just an example. And then there's, you know, a lot of Christians will be like, okay, well, we just need to go to, we just need to find what's in common and that's what matters. You know, we have this expression over here and this expression and this expression and this expression, but we all believe in Jesus and that's all that matters. And sort of, sort of, you know, (laughs) people try to make this tier of things of like, this is the most important, this is secondary. And it's like, well, if it's true, then it relates to Jesus. And if it relates to Jesus, it relates to salvation because Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. So if it's true, if it has to do with truth, it has to do with Jesus. And if it has to do with Jesus, it has to do with salvation. So everything that is true has to do with salvation. So it matters a lot. You can't just minimize it because it leads into people astray and all sorts of ungodliness. And it just communicates to the outsiders like these people have no idea what they're talking about. If they can't even agree on fill in the blank. And I'm telling you, people outside see it as plain as day. As plain as day they can see like there's no coherency here. I can't, if you were to ask somebody to describe, like an outsider especially, what is a Christian? I don't think they could tell you. (laughs) I, I really don't think. Then you mix in politics and everything else in there and it gets all wonky. But the last line of his comment, and no one will care in 100 years. This was another indicator that I think he might be an outsider because there's denominations within American Christianity that you've never heard of that were at one time a big part of the Christian faith in America. And you, you like I said, you've never even heard of them. That's because they've disappeared. They've been replaced by also think this problem might be relatively unique to America. Again, I can't speak for the rest of the world, but I do think it might be unique to America because Americans do tend to be pioneers. They tend to be entrepreneurs. They tend to be individualists, which doesn't exactly lead itself to religious subjugation or religious authority. But, you know, I don't want to digress too much on that one. But I think an outsider would be like, hey, you know what? You make up your own religion. It's not going to matter in 100 years. And I think what he's kind of saying in that observation is you can interpret it how it want doesn't make it true and it'll be gone in a hundred years and no one will care. So why bother even 
reading the Bible? Why even bother participating in church? Why even bother trying to figure out, hey, is there a true church or no? How do you know what is what a true church is? Are we all, how do you, those are questions that I don't know if many of us can answer. <laughs> My dad's actually having me read this book. It's about uh, Alexander Campbell who started the Churches of Christ, or he's affiliated with the starts of the Church of Christ and the Disciples of Christ and the Christian Church back in the early 1800s. And and him and his father had set out to try to unify the churches. And there was the Baptists and, and the Catholics and the and the Presbyterians. And there were like nine branches of Presbyterianism and whatnot at this time in history. And um, every single one of them was bold enough to say, we're the one true church. And I don't know if Catholics will say that, Orthodox will say that. I don't even think Anglicans would say it. But I don't think any modern church would be like, we're the one true church. I think everybody would actually be like, well, we're all Christian. We just have different expressions. Okay. And I think that might, I do think that's kind of undermining American Christianity. I was actually talking to a guy in, uh, he's a Catholic missionary in the wonderful state of Nebraska, about an hour from where my brother lives. And I was like, I didn't know you could be a missionary in the United States of America, apparently, especially in, in Nebraska. But he's a Catholic missionary. He's self-funded. And his missionary ministry is is the work of uniting churches like Jesus prayed in John 17. And because Jesus prayed for one church and that we'd be unified in love for each other. And he prayed that as his final prayer. And so this this guy, he made his mission, it made me happy. I was like, yes, I love, you know, I made a YouTube video about church unity and, and studying church history. But he was talking about the wide variety of beliefs he keeps encountering and he doesn't know what to make of it. Like he he could not make sense of the wide array of beliefs from church to church, denomination to denomination. And I have the same question. I actually remember growing up. So I grew up Church of Christ. I went to this wonderful Church of Christ growing up. And I assumed everybody's church functioned like our church and had the same beliefs as our church. I was like, why would it have a why? I, it wouldn't even cro- have crossed my mind that there would have been different beliefs. Like, why would there have been? And then I went to college and I was like, oh, oh, wow. And I went to a Church of Christ school. So pretty much everybody there was Church of Christ. That's when the first time I, I realized like, oh, there's different, different, I don't understand different beliefs. I don't understand. It was, it was very odd for me. I remember that at the time. But what are we to make of this? I think about this often. And I don't think I have a solution per se. I've got my thoughts. I've got my opinions, but they are currently under scrutiny for now. I, I scrutinize a lot of what I think frequently because I, I want it to be true. I, I, I don't want to say something that's not true. So I scrutinize anything I think frequently. But I'm of the opinion that Christianity in America is currently undermining itself, which I have said, because by its own means of independence and that there has to be a shared belief system and a shared leadership for anything to survive long-term. I, I really believe you have to have a shared belief system and shared leadership for anything to survive long-term. Like just to use an example, think about the constitution. What would happen if there was widespread disagreement on the interpretation of the constitution? You know, kind of like there is today. Read Age of Entitlement, you'll see that half the country believes one thing about the Constitution, half believes another. So there's, we effectively have two constitutions based on two interpretations. What would happen to the United States of America if that happened? Well, it'd split itself apart and we'd end up at each other's throats. It would feel like the country is going to cease to be a country. Now imagine if you multiply that and imagine if each state had decided to live however it decided to interpret the federal 
constitution. Like just not the federal, because I understand that each state has its own constitution. Imagine if they decided we're not going to listen to the authorities in the federal government. We're going to interpret the federal constitution for ourselves and live in accordance to that. We wouldn't have a country anymore. It, it, just, it just wouldn't be a country. And so that's kind of what has happened to a lot of the churches in America is like, we're, you know what? Nah, I'm just, we're just going to be independent. We're just going to interpret it for ourselves. We're just going to, and you, if you, if you're an outsider and you're looking at this landscape, you're like, I couldn't tell you what Christianity is. I do think the study of history would be sobering for all of us. I think that's where I don't know. I don't have any solutions. I think you need shared leadership. I think you need shared belief systems. (laughs) If you're going to ask me how we're going to do that. Well, I have no idea. I literally no idea, but I do think, you know, an attitude of humility is going to be needed and to get an attitude of humility. I do think we need to study the history of the church because it will be sobering for all of us. Very, very, I, I mean, every time I read it, it's very sobering. There's something about studying the history of the church and the end of the nations that opens the eyes of people. It makes us all see that there was actually no grandiose better time back there. It was filled with its own problems, but it also lets us see that we have a good heritage that has been handed down from generation to generation. And and best of all, you see that God's faithful. I'll, I'll come back to that one in a second, but I made a video on my YouTube channel about studying church history, and I gave some recommendations, and I'll put a link in the show notes below. I think we men, we men, we need to become familiar with our heritage, with church history. We need to look at it and we need to see it for what it is and how the Christians of the past handled disagreement and how they handled church splits and all of that stuff. And you need to know that some churches were deemed heretical. Like you need to know that, that a bunch of Christians got together and said, hey, this is not true to the deposit of faith that has been handed down. That is heretical. I'll give you an example. The One of the early ones is, and it's actually very common today. It was called Marcionism. It was a belief that the God of the Old Testament was uh, cruel and that Jesus had to fix what was wrong with the God of the Old Testament. It was a, it was a heresy. That, and that's a little oversimplified on Marcionism, but that was the, that was the, um, the heresy that Christians got together and, and it was actually bishops and they said, no, that's heretical. That is not, you are not a true church if you believe that because Jesus Christ is the same as the God of the Old Testament and the church has been there the whole time and Jesus Christ revealed it and built it and established it. That's one example. But you're also like, so you need to know about your heritage. You need to know how they handled um, heretical teaching. You need to know how they even reincorporated people back into the church because there was a time when um uh, I believe, if I, let me see if I can remember this, this is between 250 and 350 AD. I don't exactly remember all the details, but there was some persecution of the church and they, and Rome demanded that they hand over all their sacred texts and documents. And some people handed them over and some people didn't. And the people who didn't deemed that the people who handed them over could no longer partake in the Lord's supper and be part of the church. And so they had deemed them separate and heretics. And then later they actually restored them back to the church because it was, um, and that was something that had happened. So you also have that element. Those are things you need, you need to know. You're like, how did people handle this? But you're also, you're going to see the faithfulness of God who promised not to let the gates of hell prevail against his church. You're going to see stuff and you're going to wonder how on earth did that happen? Or you'll be confused by certain aspects of church history, but you're also going to enjoy the best of it. 
you know, it's best not to study church history or any history really with a super critical eye because you end up with what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. But you need to just, you should look at it with an eye of like, look at God's faithfulness. He uses, God uses whoever he will. And we learn, we, you know, we learn that from the prophets. He will raise up people as he needs and he will bring people down as he needs. And But he even uses a Pharaoh, you know, but he's been faithful the whole time and he's going to be faithful again. And, and that, I think one, that's going to be something we all have to learn to cling to. And you see that when you study church history. But like we must, I think we must, must do this. Otherwise, especially in America, you're going to continue to see churches get picked off and picked off, picked off, picked off. If you're excited about the growth of your individual church, look at the national statistics. Your church growth is probably from church transfer of churches dying. Be aware of what's happening at a national scale and larger than just your own little context. I, I, all that to say, I want you, I want us all to be like, Hey, I should study church history. I don't need to be an expert in church history, but I should be at least familiar to know what happened without being super critical. Just saying, Hey, look at that. This is what happened. God was faithful through it all. And here we are today, 2000 years later and several thousand miles away, still trying to figure out what on earth is God doing on the earth through his church. But just also remember that outsiders are not fooled. They see what is happening in America, in the American church, and they're not interested of what has become of American Christianity. They're just not. And to them, none of this will matter in 100 years. And I believe you and I have an obligation to fix that, and it's not going to come by us trying to convince outsiders that our church is good while other churches are bad. You can't turn on your brothers and your sisters and expect outsiders to think, oh, you're a functional family. It's like, no, you're Jerry Springer. It's going to begin if it's for out for outsiders to recognize the truth of Christianity. It is going to have to begin with churches turning towards each other and figuring out why are we separated? Most of us, though, the splits that happened in church history, you and I had nothing to do with. And we don't even know why we have differences at all. And to say that it's all theological would I think is naive because none of us are that educated in theology. And so studying our history will allow us to look back and see, hey, what happened and how can we make corrections and be reunified as Jesus had prayed in John 17, because you and I have an obligation to fix that. All right. Today's gospel comes from John chapter two. I'm going to read the passage. This is a very short thing. I just want to point out the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple. He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and he overturned their tables. And he turned to those who sold pigeons and he said, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered it when they saw it. They remembered that it was written zeal for your house will consume me. Okay. So that's our gospel passage today. There's actually a lot happening in this passage. And, and there's just a couple things I want to point out to one thing I want to point out is that, that, you know, they're selling oxen, sheep, and pigeons and here. So Jesus drives that out of the temple and he turns to those, to those who are selling pigeons and he says, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Now, if you were to go read Leviticus chapter one and look at the sacrificial system, it starts with oxen. It ends in pigeons or doves or turtle doves, or maybe just pigeons. I think just pigeons. And it's 
Hey, if you're rich and you have an oxen, you can make a sacrifice to God. If you're poor and all you can do is pigeons, you can make a sacrifice to God. And if you remember at Jesus's dedication in the temple, his mother and his father, they brought two pigeons, which tells you that Jesus's parents were really, really poor. They couldn't afford anything else. They just had, they had their pigeons. This was, this is all they had. They were entrusted with the son of God, which tells you a lot about Mary and Joseph and their character, but they were really poor and and they had this pigeon and that's all they could offer. And so when Jesus turns to the people who are selling pigeons and maybe you've heard this, maybe you haven't, they were inflating the prices of these to make a profit. And if you're wealthy, whatever, you know, it's still wrong, but you know, kind of whatever, you don't really worry about as much, but if you're really poor and you're like, I just want to make a sacrifice to God because all sacrifices, sacrifices worship. That's what worship is. It's not actually singing as a type of worship, but it's, it's sacrifice. And so if you want to make a sacrifice to God and you're like, I just need a pigeon and you're like, I can't afford that pigeon. What you're doing is you're keeping the poor who are rich in faith, according to James, you're keeping the poor from being able to worship God. So Jesus is defending in one sense, he's defending his mother and his father on earth where only could afford pigeons. So and he's defending all people who are poor at the same time saying, do not get in the way of them being able to worship God. But he's also correcting the people in, in the temple. So he's protecting and he's correcting all at once, which is something Jesus does over and over in the gospel of John. If you flip over to John eight, he defends the woman caught in adultery, but then he, by protecting her, but he also turns to correct her once everybody is gone. So Jesus defends and corrects always. So he's simultaneously defending the poor, like his earthly parents. And then he, he turns and he corrects those in the temple to make sure, Hey, this is a house of worship. And the reason I'm bringing this up is how easy is it for us to make our churches and our parishes places other than places of worship? You know, the primary purpose of church on Sunday is worship of God. It's not evangelization. I don't care what people say. It's, it's worship. It's, that is what is historically been. It's the, it's been a place of worship and is a place of prayer. You know, in other gospels, Jesus says, my house, my father's house shall be a house of prayer. And sacrifice, like I said, is worship. The primary purpose of a sacrifice is to worship God. And how often do we change our churches from something other than a place of worship? A place of worship. And that's his primary purpose. And Jesus here, he's simultaneously protecting the poor to make sure that they can go offer the sacrifice because they're rich in faith. The poor are rich in faith. They have nothing else to depend on except God. And they're rich in faith and we can learn so much from them. And but he's also correcting the people who are in charge saying, hey, this is a place for worship first. All other things are secondary. This is a place of worship. And you and I probably have something we can learn for our local church about, hey, church, this is a place of worship. We don't want people taking their mind off of God, worried if they can afford to purchase the sacrifice you're selling, to use a metaphor. So you imagine if somebody's coming into, you know, they need to make a sacrifice, they're ready to worship, and they're now worried, like, okay, am I going to be able to afford to make to worship God? Am I going to be able to afford to worship God? And and we don't want that to get in the way of, their mind is now switched from I get to worship God, like, to I, can I afford it? And we don't want anything happening in our churches that would make people t- shift their focus from, am I able to worship God to anything else? Because church is a place of worship, and we should all keep that in mind as we go to church on Sundays, wherever you worship.
That's all I have for you today. Remember to subscribe on your favorite podcast app and on YouTube. If you want to dive deeper into the Institute of Men, you can become a subscriber on instituteofmen.org. There you can sign up for my newsletter. You can choose a free or a paid subscription, and then you'll receive exclusive content. You can also support the work on Institute of Men podcast.com slash support. Any financial support of any kind is very much appreciated. If you didn't like this content, just pretend you didn't listen. That helps us out too. Until next time, I'm Keaton Tucker, and this is the Institute of Men podcast.